Well, this being the final Lord's Day of the month of August, um, our summer has just about gone. Um, I said I was going to give um, eight messages in the Beatitudes. I'm sorry, yes, eight messages, seven Beatitudes, and there was one introductory message. And I think at the end of the day, even though I'm strongly tempted to preach about ten messages on the subject of peace and peaceableness, we're just going to do one. And uh, we'll be done with that. And then in the Sunday school, and we'll, oh, God willing, when I get back here in October, we'll be back in John's Gospel in the Sunday morning worship. But in our Sunday school class, uh, our summer actually began a little bit early in June, when in our June question and answers, uh, Mike gave a question that has led us on a journey through the summer. And the journey has been to explore something of the biblical teaching with respect to covenant, or covenants, plural. The covenants of God and the covenants of man. We've touched upon that too because I think it's vital to understand what a covenant is. Also to look at those human institutions that the Bible records, such as the covenant that Isaac and Abraham made with the king of Gerar or Abimelech. And also the covenant that Jacob made with Laban. That bears upon the subject of what a covenant is and how we define it, how we understand it. Uh, because God speaks into the world that the people lived in, and he speaks in terms that the people understood. And covenant was not something that came down from heaven um, out of nothing. It came in the midst of a culture that knew a great deal about covenants. And one of the things that the archaeologist Spade has done is uncovered something of the riches of covenant relations that people entered into in the ancient world. As we know that there were different types of covenants, and covenants were mandated in the midst of certain situations. And uh, again, I think we see that reflected in the Bible. Um, I think we see reflected in the Bible the fact that covenants partake of the nature of a peace treaty where conflict and strife exist. It also partakes of the nature of an assurance sort of relationship where people can be questioning or doubting whether something you said is true or whether you really intend to keep your word. And so covenants are entered into a solemn oath-sworn promises and pledges to keep the things that you've committed to do. And in a real sense, we see that also paralleled in the way God enters into covenant at the particular times when conflict exists and also the particular times when uncertainty exists. And so covenants is the answer to those things. And then I think in a general sense, covenants are meant to be restorative. They come to restore, and as we're going to see this a little more clearly this morning, the things that were lost through the fall. But we entered into the subject of the biblical covenants from the vantage point, as I mentioned, of the question that Mike asked. And what I'm doing here is I'm just doing a review, doing for the basis of our friends who are visiting with us this morning, to give you a sense of where we've been. I'm also doing it because I don't know that I have much more to say about anything that we haven't already said before. And then the other thing I hope to do is I hope to just sort of reinforce these things for you who have already heard this. And then I, mean, I do intend to make a little bit of advance upon the things that we've said. And I tend to give you a promise. If in the providence of God we're all here next year meeting together, and that's my intention. I'm not saying that because I'm planning to leave. And my intention is, God willing, to stay here and be with you next summer. And if in the providence of God that becomes a reality, I'd like to return to this subject I'd like to return to it, hopefully having, through the year, uh, a greater um, handle or greater perception, a greater um, ability to address some of the questions that are still, in my mind, hanging on this subject. I mean, even some of the things we've looked at in Exodus, you get into real complexities. You get into real things that 
they raise questions and they don't answer them. But as I've told you before, that's when things get exciting in Bible study. When you come across things you don't have answers for. Because then you're driven to thought and you're driven to study and you're driven to um, prayer and you're, di- you're driven to all the spiritual disciplines that you hope in the course of the next year, as I give some thought to this, maybe interact with you and other pastors on some of these matters, they'll be more clear to me so that if we return to this subject next year, it'll be with a greater percep- perception about what these things are. And then the other thing is that this is the first time since we did the Trinity years ago that I did anything with you folks that is thematically related, taking a subject of theology and trying to explore it. I find that frightening when I do it because I don't necessarily have a text in front of me or the context in which the text is found. and uh, So uh, there's a lot of work in doing uh, a thematic study like this. And again, I, I think to do it well, um, another year is probably a wise idea. But with respect to some of the places we've been, I've given you just a sense of what I think covenant means. It's an old sworn promise. It's an old sworn promise of peace, like a peace treaty would be. It's an old sworn promise to give assurance to those that are perhaps questioning or asking. You say your word should be enough, and that's fine. But even when Abraham says to God, how shall I know that I will receive the land? God gives him a covenant. God gives him a covenant. So if you can say that to God and get the answer that God condescends not to a relationship with Abraham. He had that already. You know, the confession of faith says that it's the distance between God and man that's so great. Covenants are needed for the purposes of, I guess, a relationship or for man to obtain any advantage from the relationship. A covenant needs to be instituted. Well, that's a nice idea. The words are good, but it just doesn't seem to be something that really pans out. God had a relationship with Abraham. He had a relationship with Adam in the Garden of Eden by reason of creation itself. And I know God is transcendent and the distance between him is so great that you'd say, how in the world could God ever have anything to do or speak or relate uh, to human beings? Because he is infinite and we're finite and he is eternal and we're creatures of time. And the disparity is so great. And yet the reality is God condescends, not just by way of covenant, God condescended to the place where he walked with Adam in the garden. Don't tell me how that happens. His presence was with, really, his son in the garden. Adam, who is the son of God, the image of God, the likeness of God. God held communion with him in the garden of Eden. I can't explain that theoretically. I just know it's in the Bible. And I know I have to affirm it, that that's a reality. And I don't believe that there was any necessity for a covenant because I don't think you need to make covenants with sons. You don't need to make covenants with nephews, as Abraham did not enter into a covenant with Lot. You don't need to make covenants with your brothers, as Jacob did not enter into a covenant with Esau, though Abraham entered into a covenant with a foreign king. And Jacob entered into a covenant with a rather rascally uncle who changed his wages some ten times. So, And that brought distrust, and that brought conflict, and there was a need for a covenant in that situation. But it's meant to restore a relationship to peace, to where you can get along with someone else, and you can be relatively certain that the promises that person gives, he's going to keep, because the alternative is to be like those pieces that 
the people passed through in Jeremiah or the pieces that God himself passed through in Genesis 15, which meant you're dead. <laughs> it's based upon the curse or the result of breaking the covenant was really death. So it's a serious thing when you enter into covenant. The covenant solemnized relationships. That's why marriage is a covenant. They don't kill you. <laughs> if marriage is in today, I know some people think they should, but that's another story. But uh, yet, marriage relationships are solemnized through the swearing of vows in the presence of God, and that in essence is a covenant. You're you're, you're swearing a covenant. You're for, forming a covenant or cutting a covenant, even though we don't cut dead animals anymore. Okay, well, um, I do want to get back to the covenant thing as restoration. That's where I want to go this morning. And, and then I want to try to do a little bit further in history in the Bible than we've done up to this point and talk about the, stu- the subject of covenant and how covenant restores the original relationship that God had with Adam in the, in the garden. And uh, I did this a little bit with you by using these here, uh, these triangles. And, you know, I'm not very good uh, at... Uh, this artwork, so don't grade me on it, okay? But you have a relationship with God and Adam, and it's a relationship in which Adam dwelt in a land called Eden. Well, actually, God dwelt in Eden, Adam dwelt in the Garden of Eden, okay? So God planted a garden, put the man in it, and the relationship that God had with Adam and Eden has other parts to it that we haven't spoken about before. And particularly, it is that this man in the Garden of Eden is image of God and likeness of God. Well, I don't know how to reflect image, so I, I can't draw it, so I'll just write image. And a part of the other thing in terms of the commission that God gave, and I think also part of image, is the fact that God said not only to Adam, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it, he also said, had, have dominion over it. So Adam had a, a, a work in the garden. of uh, Once the wife was provided for him, they were to mul- be fruitful. They were to multiply. Children, progeny. They were to dwell in Eden. And I would suppose if Adam had remained in an unfallen state, there would have been an expansion of Eden in due time. As the population of Eden would overflow, the ability of the garden to sustain them, they would have been, I mean, all the earth is the Lord's, right? And uh, a man was to subdue the earth and subdue it, not just the garden. He was to subdue the earth and, 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 and subdue it. Um, and, and so there would have been images of God in all the earth. You know, and, and I think that's the import, importance of statements like you see the angels in the throne room vision in Isaiah saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And the question is, how does the whole earth get filled with God's glory? Well, I believe it says humanity spreads with the knowledge of God in all the earth. So another expression is given in the book of Isaiah in a related chapter that um, um, the glory of the Lord fills the earth as the waters cover the sea. Uh, the glory of God, yeah, it's seen in creation, but I think even more so, it's seen in his images. It's seen in human images that represent God. And hopefully, it, without sin, they represent God truly and accurately. Um, so man, as his image, were to be in, be in the garden. And uh, he was to do this other matter of, uh, I thought to draw a crown. But I'm going to have to practice that. And I'm not prepared to do that just off the cuff and have you all laugh at me. So I'll just say he was to exercise kingship. So there was a kingdom in which man was to preside over, uh, exercising kingship 
over the creation, subduing it, having dominion over the animals. And um, that was the original relationship. And what we saw when we come to Abraham, and I really blew this. I wish I could do this over, but I can't. But with Abraham, we saw that God chose Abraham and promised him the land, the land of Canaan. That will be his and his seeds uh, uh, possession. Um, and God, um, so you have something of, of the restoration of the promise of land. And in fact, it comes in the way of blessing. God blessed them and said, God came to Abraham and he blessed him. And he said, blessing, I will bless you. And through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And you have, a, I mentioned the five mentions of blessing that's in the first part of Genesis. And you have it right in the first like three verses of, um, of Genesis. So um, God's restoring blessing. Um, he, the same thing he restored, we saw, with respect to Noah when he came out of the ark. There is the, re, um, the re-giving of the original creation mandate. But you notice in Genesis chapters 8 and 9, when God give, uh, gives the covenant to, to Noah, the covenant of, of preservation, that one thing is absent. He says, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. And they, it might say subdue, but it doesn't say have dominion over it. Dominion is not given to sinful creatures. You don't give power to sinful creatures because they tend to abuse it. You know, and so God's going to give power to have dominion over things, who people who are worthy to have dominion. And he's going to give land to people that have dominion. But uh, that's the next covenant. But here with Abraham, um, God promises this aspect that you're going to have the restoration of the promise of Eden. In fact, when Lot looked at the Jordan Valley, he saw it, it was like the Garden of God, it says. It was like the Garden of God. The very land that God was going to give to Abraham is likened unto the Garden of God. And you have a similar statement of that in the book of um, Isaiah, Isaiah 50 or 51, when they're going to come back to the land. It's like the Garden of God. That land that has become like a wilderness. That land that has been devastated by war. That land that has been uh, uninhabitable. Uh, They're going to come back and inhabit it again. And the the deserts are going to turn into gardens once, once more. Um, and so that's a picture of divine restoration. And so God's going to restore the promise that he gave at creation through Abraham and his seed. Okay, um, But again, the, act, the aspect of kingship is not really apparent at this time. But when you come to, to Moses, okay, you come to Moses, and I'm sorry, of course it's God who is over all of this, but God comes and calls Moses to deliver the people who are the children of Abraham who have been promised the land. And yet generation after generation after generation after generation came to birth and they died and they're not in the land. They're in Egypt. And at first they're in Egypt as free people. But then there arose a Pharaoh that did not know Joseph and they're enslaved. And they're under this great bondage. And all during the time the people of Israel are in bondage in Egypt, the iniquity of the Amorite is growing ever increasing, ever more despicable, ever more abominable, until the time when the iniquity of the Amorite becomes full. And right at that time, when that's going on, 
God sees the suffering of his people and he remembered his covenant with Abraham. Remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So everything that can happen in terms of redemption of this people from, from, from Egyptian bondage was because of Abraham. That's the driving force. You, uh, God did not choose you, Deuteronomy says, because you're the greatest of all the nations. Or you're the most righteous of all the nations. God chose you because he loved your fathers. He loved your fathers. And so love is the driving force. His zeal for his people is the driving force. It's a marital love, a marital commitment. Jeremiah 31 says, A new covenant I will make with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not according to the covenant I made with their fathers in the wilderness. That's his Mosaic covenant he's talking about. He said, Which my covenant they broke, though I was a husband unto them. God was their husband. It was love, marital love. That was the driving force behind what he does in redeeming the people because of his love for the fathers. And uh, But, you know, again, this was a covenant that brings in new elements. And the main thing is it could be broken. The main thing is it could be broken. And when you think about the whole matter of the king and our created kingship, God comes to redeem Israel from under the authority and dominion of another king. His name was Pharaoh. And God shows his power and that all the earth belongs to him. And that's, that's a, a repeated refrain. Every time Moses is sent into Egypt and say, let my people go, Pharaoh is going to remind, be reminded, you're going to learn that God is the God of all the earth. He controls all the nations. And all the nations are, are subject to him. Um, God's not this Israel's God is not a territorial God. He's the universal King. He's the He's the He's the God who made heaven and earth and everything that's in it, and that includes Pharaoh, that includes Egypt, and He has sovereignty and lordship and kingship over it. And then when God brings the people of Israel out of Egyptian bondage, it's to manifest the reality that He is King. So it's the picture what we saw last week. For those of you who were here last week, of what's called a suzerain covenant. The suzerain was the overlord. It's like Pharaoh eating up little kingdoms, this place, that place, and the next place. And we don't really understand that in the ancient world. Is that every little city and town had its own king, it would seem. Because you just look at the conquest of the land, how many kings there were. Seven kings here they gobbled up. But there was just a small part of territory that they're taking. But another dozen kings over here. City after city after city and their kings. Every city had their kings. And yet... When Pharaoh, or the Assyrians later, or the Babylonians after that, or the Persians after that, would emerge in victory over a lesser people, and they would bring them into their kingdom, they would be made to swear an oath of loyalty to the king. And there are these peace treaties, or these suzerain treaties, that you can read about it. Go put into the... Google, uh, suzerain treaties, and you'll get copies from very varying parts of nations. I made up one last time with a, an Egyptian king I called Tutmos, but well, you know, that's just my imagination. But in that suzerain uh, treaty, God's saying, I'm the king, and, and it takes the, the, the elements of that ancient kind of treaty where, where, where the king would say, here's what I've done. I'm the Lord who defeated your armies in battle but yet I'm a merciful Lord 
and I want to express my, my love to you. And so he'll announce who he is, he'll announce something of the history of the relationship. He would announce now that this relationship exists. I'm the king, I'm the overlord, you're the vassal, you're, you're the lesser people. Uh, yet I, 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 I will give you these provisions. He, he speaks in terms of blessings. Well, blessings and cursings come later, but he speaks about stipulations, things you're responsible to do, warnings about not doing them, curses if you violate them, and all those elements that you see in an ancient covenant treaty really are there in the book of Exodus, in part Deuteronomy in a much fuller way. Uh, even the witnesses, God swears a covenant calling he- heaven and earth to bear witness um, who else could bear witness? I mean, um, anyway, the point is that God is establishing his throne rights over this nation. He's the God of the land. They're going to be under his laws. And it's a question of will they obey him? And this whole matter of the question of obe- obedience to God is a matter of keeping or breaking the covenant that determines not so much whether God's promise to Abraham will be fulfilled. God's promised him a land. He's promised him a land in which a progeny of an immense proportion, stars of the heavens and sand of the sea, a multitude that no man can number from every kindred, tongue, and tribe, they're going to they're enter into this land. In fact, in Egypt, they multiplied to, I think, 1.6 million people. Or, uh, I'm, they're speculating. I think there were 600,000 soldiers or men who were ready to fight. And so you multiply women, children, hey, a lot of people, a lot of people. And in this short period of time, an amazing amount of reproduction going on, being fruitful and multiplying, because it's a covenant of progeny. It's a covenant of reproduction. Lots of kids you're going to have because lots of people are going to enter into that into that land well God's going to fulfill it after years and years and years and years of Abraham's seed not having the land but the question is who's going to operate, who's who's going to enter the land and it can't be that generation that made the golden calf or that generation that would not trust the Lord and go up into Canaan so you have another generation of people that come out of Egypt. They were basically idolaters. God had to declare his name to them. They didn't know who he was. Who was the God of their fathers? They had no clue. And the fact that they worship a golden calf is an, an, an indicator that they had adopted Egyptian customs. And so one of the great principles of the law was that they were not to practice the customs of the Egyptians or the Canaanites. It's the customs of Lord, that you must be obeying. And that's a question of breaking and keeping the covenant of curses and blessings. And so that's the nature of this covenant. It's not so much a question of whether the promises to Abraham are good. It's the question of who will receive that promised blessing of the land. It wasn't that generation that came out of Canaan. It was the generation that learned obedience in the wilderness. And again, 40 years to learn what Jesus said to the devil after 40 days that through the great lessons of the book of Deuteronomy that you sh- the man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God that you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve that you should not tempt the name of the Lord your God and all of these things were things that God says I tested you in the wilderness that you would learn these things that you would know these things and that to me is what Jeremiah is talking about when we study remember Jeremiah chapter 2 and you have that 
statement that, you know, you scratch your head and you say, what in the world is this about? When did this happen? When um, first words of the public proclamation of Jeremiah, Jeremiah 2, the Lord says, the word of the Lord came to me saying, go proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. Thus says Yahweh, I remember the devotion of your youth, the love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness, in the land not sown. And scratch your head, wait a minute, you're talking about the grumblers that came out of Egypt? <laughs> We're saying we want to go back because we liked it better there, or the food was better there, or the menu was more diverse? Is that what you're talking about? Israel was holy to the Lord? When were they? They were hard-hearted and stiff-necked. And you, know, you read the commentaries and say, well, Jeremiah's idealizing <laughs> what the relationship should have been. And my response is nonsense. Jeremiah is reflecting, not Exodus, he's reflecting Deuteronomy. He's reflecting the people in the land of Moab being now ready to enter into the land. He's reflecting the second generation reality. When the people in the wilderness were tried and tested by God, and they were to be a people basically following the Lord. They were not going to say, uh, let's go back to Egypt at this point. And the dying stopped because the rebellion stopped. Um, That's the interesting thing in the book of Numbers. At one point, the dying stops. The plagues stop because that generation was cut off and then this new generation is now going to come in. So that was the picture of the people who learned obedience, basic obedience, prepared to enter into the land. Psalm 95 speaks about uh, hearing the the voice of God, not like those in the wilderness. Uh, And uh, they perished in the wilderness, but there were people that entered into the rest of God. And the rest of God is what the people of Israel were going to achieve once the Canaanites were destroyed and they had possession of the land. But then it goes on to say in verse uh, 7, And I brought you into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruits and its good things, Jeremiah 2, 7. But when you came in, you defiled my land. You defiled my land. And made my heritage an abomination. And you read about that. It parts in the book of Joshua. But mainly of that ongoing cycle of the book of Judges. Of the people in the land worshipping the gods of the land. Forsaking the Lord. Worshipping the Baals. God would send them into captivity. They'd send the Midianites to ravage their land and take all their the produce of, of, of their crops and to leave them in a state of devastation until they cried out to the Lord and he would raise up a deliverer. He'd raise up a savior. He'd raise up a Gideon. He'd raise an Ehud first and Gideon and Othniel and there's, you know, all the list of the judges. Uh, Hithophel, I forget who they were. I think I got that one wrong. <laughs> Jeru- no, that's Gideon. Jerubbabel is Gideon. But anyway, there's a whole series of Samson, of course, is the last one. And it seems like as you move on, even the deliverers are morally compromised. And then you have the statement that comes at the end of the book of Judges about the state of the land in which everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And why? Why did everybody do what was right in their own eyes what was the what was the reason the people were so rebellious and so I mean it was out of their hearts indeed but there was one thing that was lacking remember what that was there was no what in Israel king 
There's no king in Israel. Wait a minute, God's to be the king, yes. But again, God's still king in Eden. But humanity is his underlord. They're the ones that are to have dominion. And so God's dominion, God's kingdom was always designed to be a kingdom that would be presided over by a human being. <laughs> that uh, right in Hebrew says um, uh, that, that uh, to man was committed the age to come. It was human beings that must reign. There must be a man who will preside over this kingdom of God. And so there is to be a man. And you have this in the Psalms, you have this in the, some of the prophets, uh, this matter of God's kingship and the human king and the Davidic king. Again, you have it with regard to the question of the king, the first king in Israel, when the people came to, to, to um, Samuel and said, we want a king. Now, that was not a problem. For them to ask for a king would not have been a problem because God made provision for a king in the book of Deuteronomy. God said, what kind of king you should choose? It's the king that's not going to take a harem for himself. It's a king that is a king that's not going to amass for himself great wealth and great fortune and horses and chariots and great military power and military might. He was the king who was to read God's law once a year. He was to rule in righteousness. That was God's provision for a king. Kings anticipated. Again, the people of Israel, when they came out of Egypt, in chapter 19, and this is one of the ambiguous statements, I still don't understand it in its fullness, and there's all kinds of speculation about it, but the Lord does make that statement about them being a kingdom of priests unto God. And in the translation of the Septuagint, at least, it, that gets translated, uh, priesthood and kingdom gets really put together in the sense that it's a royal priesthood. Royalty and priesthood all come together. And the nation was to be that. The nation was to be a kingdom of priests. Now, how in the world that occurred? Because you have a priesthood in Aaron. There's lots of things you just can't necessarily figure out, which is what makes some of this very, very challenging. But the fact is that there was to be an understanding of a king, as well as a priest, in Israel. And uh, you find out in Moses, it's interesting, but Moses was, uh, of course, of the same family. Uh, just let me get this out, and then I'll, I'll take your question. That Moses was of the same family as Aaron, right? One was the priest, and the other was the prophet. Even though Aaron becomes Moses' prophet at one point, and yet Moses is still doing sacrifice, all really, through, through the book of Exodus. So you have Moses doing sacrifice, and you have others doing sacrifice, even if they're not part of Aaron. Thing in chapter uh, 24, he says the young men, and they're doing sacrifice. I don't have it all figured out, but I do see that the, in Israel there was to be kingship and there was to be priesthood, and the people were to, um, um, though God was their king, yet kingship was to be. Uh, an aspect of, of, the, of the reality of life in Israel, provisions made for one. And it wasn't so much that they wanted a king, was that they wanted a king like all the nations. They wanted that kind of king. Vivian, you had a question? Well, yeah, I, I didn't quite understand um, because in Samuel, when they asked for a king, God's saying, you know, go ahead and give them a king because they're, they're rejecting me as their king. I don't see anywhere where it says that they were supposed to have a king before that reigning over their nation. They had no, what I'm, what I'm saying is that the, the, the rejection of God as king was a desire to have a kingdom that was like all the other nations. 
were the kind of king that all the other nations had over them. And it's not that it was not anticipated that there would be a king in Israel, because in, De- in Deuteronomy 17, provisions made for a king. That's, that's my point, is that this is anticipated, that there will be a king in Israel. Uh, turn to Deuteronomy, I'm sorry? Yes. What's that? Meaning a physical king or a Christ's king? No, a physical king. A physical king. Look at uh, Deuteronomy chapter 17. It says, When you come into the land that Yahweh your God has given you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me, like all the nations that are around me. It's funny, they use the same language there. He says, You may indeed set a king over you, whom Yahweh your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And it goes on to say about the copy of the book of the law that should be uh, read by him. It should be with him. He shall read it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord our, his God. And the question wasn't so much that there would be a king. This is a question of what kind of king. And, and of course they chose Saul because he was the well, tallest. But you know David was apparently the one who was, you don't judge according to appearance, but um, um, the Lord judges the heart. And you have a king that's after God's own heart. And David becomes the model of kingship. And it's important that we see that because you see everything that you see, I believe, once things get really bad in Israel, is everything is setting things up for King, for David. I think David becomes the central character in this Old Testament story. And uh, we've seen that in the Psalms. He's the central figure of the Psalms. You see that in the, the genealogies that we've looked at in many times before in Matthew's Gospel of the generations to the king and um, King David generations of Davidic kings and then waiting for the next Davidic king that comes in Jesus. Because all of this is really setting ourselves up for the fact of the new covenant. This is what I want to, what I'm looking to show you is that with respect to the new covenant, here's where the fulfillment comes. This is the fulfillment covenant. This is the covenant that's not just promissory. This is where we cash in the the check. We, we, we've seen the blood of the covenant in Exodus 24. Jesus at the Last Supper says, My, this is the blood of the new covenant that is shed for the sins of many. And in a real sense, it's Jesus that is the fulfillment of all of these promises. And particularly with respect to the kingship aspect of it, which is, you know, to be of vital, vital importance. And one of the things you see, I was talking to, to Ray about this, is that when Jesus is presented to us in the New Testament, uh, Matthew 1, verse 1, first verse of the New Testament, let's look at it. Matthew 1, 1. The page is turning, it's me. (laughs) I think everybody's there already. Yeah, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And that's reflective of the Genesis. Genesis has those ten statements of Toledoths. The book of the genealogy of this one, that one, and the next one. Well, here's the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. 
And then he's called the son of David and the son of Abraham. I think that the tendency is that we, when we remember this passage, we're probably going to say first son of Abraham, son of David, because Abraham came first in history. So you say he's son of David first, then he's son of, uh, son of Abraham first, then son of David. But no, um, Matthew reverses the order. He says son of David, son of Abraham, and then he moves into this genealogy where David is the central figure. Again, the 14 generations until uh, David the king, verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David, the 14 generations from David to the deportation to the Babylon, 14 generations from the deportation to the Babylon to to the Christ, the son of David, (laughs) 14 generations. So 14 generations till you get the king, 14 generations of his descendants who reigned in Israel as the United Kingdom and then Judah as the Southern Kingdom. And then it all fell apart when the Babylonian captivity came. And Zedekiah, the final king, is, as his, sees his sons die and get killed by Nebuchadnezzar. He gets his eyes plucked out. And then he's sent into, into, in, in, into Babylon, just as Jeremiah told him he would be. Um, and then there's 14 generations until the next king. And Jesus is presented as the next king, whereas he was born king of the Jews, is what the wise men ask in chapter 2. And Jesus is presented as the king. Um, But notice, we have lots of references in the Bible to Jesus as the seed of Abraham, the son of Abraham. Uh, Paul comments on that in Galatians 3, that he says, seeds not as many, uh, but seeds singular, which is Christ. Christ is the seed of Abraham, in, in whom all the promises of God find fulfillment. We become sons of God. Even if you're a Gentile, you become a son of God. Uh, Not through Abraham, but through Abraham's son, through Jesus. Not because you're the physical seed of Abraham, but because you believe in Jesus. You become the seed of of Abraham. But uh, Jesus is also son of David. But he's never once called son of Moses. He's never once called the son of any other figure. You think Moses is the greatest figure in the history of Israel. And yet Jesus is not the son of Moses. Moses was a servant, faithful, in all the house of God. Hebrews 3 says, Jesus is the one who built the house. Jesus is the one who rules over the house. The the world of the age to come is given to Jesus. He's the fulfillment of, well, another thing, that Jesus is called the last Adam. Um, He's the true Israel. But he's never anything with respect to Moses, except his son, Moses' servant. So there's a clear contrast with Jesus and Moses. The law came through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Um, again, I'm, I'm not saying there's a wide contrast. Grace and truth was God's revelation through Moses. He revealed himself on the mountain as gracious and merciful, so to anger, abundant in loving kindness and truth. So, uh, but the point is, the tendency is more not to think of Jesus as the fulfillment of any promise given to Moses. Oh, he is. No, oh, he is. The Lord will raise up a prophet like unto me. That's Jesus. Um, but in terms of the covenant relationships, what a promise in these covenants, they find their fulfillment in, in Jesus. So that Jesus brings the true restorative covenant, the true restoration of what was lost through Adam, the true restoration of what Israel should have possessed, but because of disobedience did not possess, gets fulfilled in Jesus. Because he's the covenant servant of God who is obedient. 
He's the covenant servant of God who fulfills all the requirements of God's holiness and God's justice and God's law. He's the one who gave himself as an offering for our sins. He's the one that brings the true life, the true reconciliation, the true blessedness of communion with God and living with God in the land. And it's interesting how the land, it becomes a different thing, truly. Again, the land is a future inheritance, but yet it's, a, it's an inheritance that we have a down payment of now through the Holy Spirit that's been given to us. The communion that Adam knew in the garden as he walked the garden in the cool of the day, we know today as the Holy Spirit dwells in us. The promise of the Spirit is, in fact, our capacity to walk with God, to live in the, before the presence of God. God is with us. God is Emmanuel. God with us is with us in Jesus through the spirit of Jesus that is given to us to testify of the things of Christ and to bring us into fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. But what I'm saying is that Jesus is self-consciously in the New Testament the fulfillment of all of these prior covenants. I mean, they're all sort of models that point to him. They're all, they all sort of prefigure what is going to come in Jesus. The Son and image of God through whom, well, in Abraham, it's all the families of the earth will be blessed, but in whom true fruit bearing and true multiplication, how often in the New Testament is that language found? Um, Why does it say the church multiplied in the book of Acts again and again and again? It's called on the Genesis language. Paul in his prayer says, bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God. There's this fruit bearing and multiplication that comes through Christ. The second Adam, he brings in the reality of the you know, people back in the day. You know, they used to have this question, is it the Great Commission that's the great thing the church is to be concerned about, or what they call the creation mandate? Well, I don't see a difference between the two. <laughs> you know, I see the creation mandate as basically saying man's made in God's image for God to walk with God to commune with God to be obedient before God to be his image and likeness in the world and uh, you know, I, I don't see that the gospel brings anything different except it brings the true fulfillment of what was prefigured in these Old Testament covenants so Jesus is the fulfillment of it he's the son of Abraham in whom all the families of the earth will be blessed and he's the son of David through whom the kingdom comes to the fullness of its rights. The Father says, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies the footstool of your feet. And you know, so we see that all these promissory covenants are come to their fulfillment in the Lord Jesus, and certainly the new covenant as well as the, the major covenant. And it's an interesting thing that the, that the passage of the Old Testament that's the longest quotation in the New Testament is that very passage in Jeremiah 31. It's quoted almost in its entirety, really, in the book of Hebrews. I think it's chapter 8 in the book of Hebrews. It gets quoted in its entirety. Chapter 10 is an abbreviated version of the thing. But that becomes the, the all-important thing as to how God brings about the fulfillment of his promises um, to restore what was lost through Adam, through the second Adam, to restore what, or to bring into pass what was promised in the Abrahamic covenant, Let's do the coming of the king. Let's do the Davidic son. Um, and that's what, why that's given priority. I mean, most often Jesus is called son of David repeatedly in the gospel. Son of David had mercy upon us. He is the son of Abraham, but it's not, not that often. I think the, 
you know, again, to me, David is the chief figure of the Old Testament. He's the chief figure even in the New Testament as well, as uh, Jesus fulfills um, the whole matter of kingship. So, anyway, so what I want to do, God willing, next year, if we can be given the time to do it, is to just sort of fine-tune some of the things we've seen with respect to uh, the Mosaic Covenant and some of the things that still cause my mind to whirl, and then just really do move on to uh, David. We haven't really looked at David, and I think that's an important covenant to look at, and then the New Covenant. And um, and also with respect to the New Covenant, uh, I'm, I'm putting together what I hope will be a very compelling for me, anyway, it is hopefully for you. Hope I convince you that the whole question of covenant signs um, really mark out what the nature of the covenant is, so that the whole matter of the rainbow. The only other reference to bows that I read about in the Old Testament is the bow of war. And so God got finished business, finished his business of going to war against the. You know, a wicked humanity and uh, the arrows of his judgment came upon the then world and now as this new world comes through Noah God says I'm taking the bow of war and I'm turning it into a bow of beauty <laughs> a bow that is in the sky of, um, and, that, uh, and it's a picture of his being at peace uh, at least in terms of the preservation of creation so that these other purposes and plans of restoration get fulfilled if we get a, 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 a flood that's going to wipe out humanity every 10 years, this is a multitude that no man can number from every kindred, tongue, and tribe can never come into existence. Of course, it comes into existence through the preaching of the gospel, but um, make disciples of all the nations. That's how the Abrahamic covenant gets fulfilled in terms of the Great Commission. But, what's pre- but what the Great Commission brings to pass is a restoration of the Genesis design. Designed for creation gets restored in a new creation that Jesus comes to bring. So I want to explore the sign aspect of it with respect to the new covenant and why circumcision is not replaced by baptism. Circumcision is replaced, even in the Old Testament, with the circumcision of the heart. It's not really replaced, it's just pointing. It's a symbol that points to the circumcision of the heart. It was a sign of the Abrahamic covenant because the Abrahamic covenant was a covenant of procreation. He didn't have a child, and he's going to get a miracle child in his old age. And every successive generation went to recognize, well, we're kind of under a mandate of the increase of our of our tribes, of the increase of our nation. Because God promised to Abraham a multitude of, as numerous as the stars of heaven and the sand of the sea. So it's in that aspect of procreation that the Abrahamic covenant gets to be fulfilled, at least in terms of the natural descendants of Abraham. And then the sign of the covenant and the Mosaic covenant is the rest. 